Acts 1, 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a caldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabus, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Thank you, Samantha, for reading the text this morning. I really do appreciate those that do read the text on occasion, there are times where there are names that are difficult to pronounce. And I know that some of you probably have been asked, you want to know, what text am I reading? Because I'm pretty sure there's some names that you want to avoid. <laughs> but we appreciate those who read. This morning, we're going to continue our sermon series in Forward, Principles for Thriving Churches in Today's World. I began last week using the analogy that Jesus said that I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus is the source of strength. He is the source of life and vitality. And we as God's people, if we are going to thrive, we must be tapped into that source of life. This morning I want to look at the analogy that the Apostle Paul made on a number of occasions where the church is referred to as the Lord's body, and it is Christ who is the head. And we as God's people, we as the church of Jesus Christ here in North Little Rock, we cannot thrive without our head. In fact, I, I look around, I see all of you alive today, and all of you have your heads on. Well, maybe you were told this morning your head's not on straight, but it's still on. You see, the body can only thrive when it's attached to its head. And the body of Jesus Christ can only thrive when we acknowledge and recognize its true head. It's not the pastor. It's not the deacons. 
It's not anyone that is sitting in the pew, but it is one who is here with us, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the head of his church. And if we're going to thrive, we need to make sure that the head is in the proper place. That is very applicable to the series that we're preaching and the message for today, which is forward in our decisions. How can a church properly make the right decisions apart from her head? We can't. And so this morning I want to, to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, and look at some principles that we as God's people can make the right decisions. And in doing so, we are not only going to look at decisions in the sense of how we make as a church, but I think there's some principles that will also allow us how we make decisions as individuals. There's some principles there for all of us. Because inevitably, we all make decisions. Obviously, you got up this morning and you made the decision to come to church. Praise God. I'm glad you're here. I don't like preaching to an empty room. Sometimes our decisions may go like this. This happens commonly among couples. But the husband may ask the wife, Honey, I'd like to take you out to eat. Where would you like to go? The wife would reply, it doesn't matter to me wherever you want. The husband would say back, well, I'm craving Mexican food. She goes, no, that doesn't sound good. We had tacos on Tuesday. Okay, the husband says, because he wants to please his wife. He says, well, how about Chinese food? Oh, well, I don't want to go to that place. It gave me an upset stomach last time we went there. Chinese food just really doesn't sound good. And so the husband would say, well, honey, then what would you like to eat? She goes, it doesn't matter to me, whatever you would like. <laughs> you know it's true. <laughs> we make decisions all the time, but can you imagine if we had such a scenario among God's people when it comes to the work of God? We'd get nothing done. We'd be stalled and paralyzed. And most time, our decisions become increasingly more difficult depending on the circumstances that we're faced. When tough times come, when difficult times come, sometimes we, just, we, 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 we struggle and we stress and anxiety sets in of what exactly are the decisions that we should make. And so we find in Acts chapter 1, where the, the first church, they, they've gone through a lot already. They've seen the death of Jesus. They've seen his resurrection. He walked with them out of the resurrection for 40 days. And now they just witnessed his ascension into heaven. And he physically was not present with them at that time. He gave them instructions. He gave them encouragement. He has given them hope, but now they are to function without his physical presence. How does a church make right decisions? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. A church devoted to prayer is prepared to make right 
decisions. Do you believe prayer is important? Absolutely. The disciples asked Jesus, you know, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer is, is very a fundamental practice that we should all be doing. Now, some of you may only pray during mealtime. Some of you may just know how to pray. Maybe that Clint Eastwood prayer, I can't remember what movie it was in, but he was acting like a Catholic priest, and he wasn't. And they asked him to pray, and all he said was, rubby-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. <laughs> Sometimes all we, we, we pray just simplistic prayers. We all might pray on different levels depending on our closeness of relationship to Christ. Some of us have a, a number of matters in which we pray about, but prayer is essential to the life of a believer, and prayer is essential to the life of the church. Prayer is important. I want you to notice that, that in our text, it is a demonstration of unity. Notice this. If you've always wanted to know what car to buy, it's a Honda. Because it says, all these with one accord. They all shared it. All 120 of them. There you go. My sermon is done. No. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The idea of one accord, if you imagine, many of us have seen a rope, used a rope of some sort, that a rope is made up of several strands tightly woven together, going in the same direction. That is a, a, an illustration of a church in prayer, that they're together, they're unified, they're tightly woven together, and they're all going the same direction. Truly, a church of Jesus Christ is to be united. There are a number of passages of Scripture. There could be a number of sermons that we could preach this morning about unity, but I do not have the time. But I know this, that love is the perfect bond of unity. And Jesus is the source for all of us to be united. And here the first church was all together, woveling, uh, wove together tightly, going the same direction and devoting themselves to prayer. We ought to be on the same page that we put prayer as a, as a preeminent practice in the church. Shouldn't we? It's not something that we should take lightly. We should all be praying. Now, I'll say this, and, and you, can, you can take me out back and shoot me later. The most common prayer request is about health concerns. Now, those aren't wrong, and I don't, they're not, but we ought to be a body of people that not only pray for health concerns, but about spiritual concerns, about the salvation of our family members, our neighbors, and our neighborhood. We ought to be praying for the spiritual well-being of our church our country, even our president. We ought to be praying about spiritual things because they do matter. 
and we need to do it in unity. Not only does devoted to prayer to make right decisions, it is a demonstration of perseverance. Notice this word devoting. It gives us the idea in the original language as a continual action. This is something of a practice that they persevere through. I can tell you this, that, that, that a person who is distant from God, the first thing that fails is prayer and Bible study. But when hard times come, difficult times come, it's not time to quit praying, it's time to dive in a little deeper. Hang on a little tighter and hang on a little longer because we're to be devoted to prayer. There's many things we're devoted to. Some of us are very devoted in marriage as well as you should be. Jenny has put up with me for almost 32 years. She has a special reward in heaven waiting for her for doing that. I know it. And she doesn't have plans quitting, at least she hasn't uttered them to me. She's devoted to me, and I thank God every day for that. And I'm going to be devoted to her. Sometimes we're devoted to our jobs. We give a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of sacrifice at our jobs. We're just devoted. Some of us are devoted to the gym. As you can tell, I am not. But God bless you for being devoted to your health. Some of you are very devoted to this church. You know how I know? Because you're always around. You're volunteering, you're doing things. In fact, some of the, the, the people were here on Friday playing pickleball, so I joined them. First thing people asked me this morning is, am I sore? I said, no, should I be? And they started limping. So I guess I should be. But they're very devoted to here because they love Faith Baptist Church. More importantly, they love Jesus. And if we're going to be devoted, we need to be devoted to prayer, to persevere. We need to be a praying church. Praying is vital to making the right decisions. And I'll speak more about that in just a few moments. But a church devoted to prayer, we put ourselves in a position of making the right decisions. That is applicable personally as well. We personally have decisions to make. Prayer sets the stage to make the right decisions. Pastoral leadership is vital in making right decisions for the church. Now understand, I said Jesus is the head of the church. But God had set pastors in the church to help lead and guide and direct. And it's vital, pastoral leadership is vital in making right decisions. I want to share with you three aspects, three aspects of pastoral leadership for a second. I think this is important for us to grasp as we look at Peter's example in Acts chapter 1. First of all, he is a shepherd. Peter, by the way, wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So the idea behind shepherding is that the pastor has the responsibility of feeding God's people. I want you to understand that the flock of God is not his, even though, as I feel as a pastor, that there is some sense of you're mine, but I don't own you. You belong to God. You're God's flock. And as that, there's a responsibility that as, God, as God's flock, i got to take care of God's flock, don't I? Have you borrowed something from a neighbor, a friend, a tool perhaps? I always had the, the principle that when I borrowed something, I always wanted to return it in as good or better shape than I received it. Well, God has a people in which pastors are set over who have the responsibility to feed the flock, to protect, to guide, to lead, to, to look over their oversight and care for the flock. And not for money, not for shameful gain. It's not about the money. It's about the call of God in their lives, and they do it eagerly with passion. So he's a shepherd. The second aspect is he's an equipper. Paul wrote, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. So it's the responsibility of the ministerial staff, the pastoral staff, our lead pastor and the pastors under him, to ensure that the people of God are equipped to do the work that God has set for us to do. I love the equipping work of my job. I love coming alongside people and saying, how can I help you to be successful in whatever you do? She didn't know I was going to use her this morning as an example, but I appreciate Alice very much. She's our ministry uh, children's ministry coordinator. I got the title right. And, uh, but there's things that she plans for. We talked the other day about upcoming classes and teachers and our, that, that our, our children's ministry is growing. We need another class. Praise God. And I, and, and I want to come alongside her. What can I do to help your job better? How can I equip you with the Word of God and with the things you need to be successful? If someone says, you know, Brother Todd, I want, to, I want to scrub toilets for Jesus. I'm thankful those that are willing to clean. Then I want to get you the best scrubber. I want to come alongside you to be all that you can be for Jesus. Because that's what pastors do. We equip the people. We feed the people. That's a type of equipping. We come alongside you to encourage you, to help you to succeed in all that God desires you to do. So he's an equipper. Lastly, the pastor is accountable. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There are a number of things in this verse, by the way. 
there is a sense that the God's people are to submit to their leadership. I would say this. Let's take the principle of the Apostle Paul. You follow me as I follow Christ. Christ is our head. He's our example. He's our source of life to thrive. If the pastor is not plugged into Jesus and following Jesus, he might just be derailed. But God's people is to follow the pastor as he follows Christ. Because he's watching over your souls, he cares. A pastor cares for you. And sometimes pastors have the most difficult job of sometimes entering your life when we see you going off the rails, not to criticize, not to condemn, but to help rescue the path that you're going that could be very, very destructive. Because ultimately we have an account to give to God of how well we pastor. I'll add this one. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Don't make my life miserable, will you? <laughs> Pastoring is supposed to be joyful, and it is. But there are times of difficulty. Now, why are these three aspects important? Because you need to understand the role of a pastor. Because what we begin to see then, that every pastor must appeal to Scripture for guiding the church. Remember, he feeds the flock, he equips, and he's accountable. So if a ch if church is going to make right decisions, it's important that the pastor himself spends time in the Word and in prayer, and when decisions are made, that Scripture is the guiding principle book where we base our decisions. Now, if we're making decisions for remodeling, and we're going to talk about carpet. I don't see so much where carpet, the color of carpet is in Scriptures, but how we arrive to that decision, there's principles that we're to follow. But it says in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. And what Peter was doing was Peter was there as they were all together in one accord praying that Peter appealed to the Scriptures for the decision that the church is about to make. He shared the Scriptures, and he is, he is telling them, look, this is the Scriptures that... that based on Judas's decision to betray Christ and abandon his apostleship, by also which he took his own life. The Scriptures detailed that, that someone should take his place. So Peter, who's there praying with, his, with, with the church, looked to the Scripture to make the decision, rightfully so, and so should every pastor. The Bible is our rule of faith and practice. And every decision made should be based upon the Word of God, bathed in prayer. But pastoral leadership is vital. We have seen, you may have experienced, where poor pastoral leadership can harm churches. Wise pastoral leadership 
will not only honor God, but God usually blesses those churches. So pastoral leadership is vital in making right decisions. Spiritual direction is essential in making right decisions. We'll go back to prayer for a moment, the subject of prayer. You see, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to guide. John said in 1613, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, some people kind of have taken the position that perhaps maybe the decision that the first church made in Acts chapter 1 isn't the right decision because uh, uh, the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost didn't come to empower them yet. But I want you to consider some observations. First of all, as they were there, when God said to wait in Jerusalem, He didn't say do nothing and decide nothing. In fact, according to Luke chapter 24, we see uh, in verses 52 and 53 that they continually went into the temple before the day of Pentecost and worshiped God and, and, and praised Him daily. We also see in uh, John chapter 20, verse 22, where before Jesus' ascension, it says that He breathed on the apostles to receive the Holy Spirit. That seems to be that there was a, a temporary endowment of the Spirit until the day of Pentecost where they were empowered for service. And thirdly, if it's true that the Holy Spirit didn't come to empower on the Pentecost, then how did any saint of God, Old Testament or New, ever make decisions without spiritual direction? I see in the New Testament a lot of people prayed to God. In fact, I remember specifically when the people of God didn't pray and it backfired on them. For example, when Joshua was... Uh, taking the people of Israel into the promised land, and the Gibeonites came and tricked them. It specifically says in the context that they didn't seek the Lord in prayer. They didn't consult with Him, and so they were deceived. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to guide, to lead. We also see that the church then is to seek spiritual guidance. Look at Acts one twenty four. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the heart of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So the solution Peter came up with, he says, Look, this is what the Scripture says. We're praying together. So now you need to choose two men based upon those who have been with us from the time of the resurrection, who have seen His resurrection and ascension, that could fulfill this office. And they begin to pray and says, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. So what we see so far is we have a church united in prayer. They're continually to do it. They have pastoral leadership who is seeking Scripture to make right decisions we have a church together who is seeking spiritual guidance 
to make right decisions. That leaves us lastly then that the church participates in making right decisions. I hope you all understand that here at Faith Baptist Church, it is the people who ultimately affirm how God leads us. The pastor is not a dictator. We're attached to a head. We only have one. It's Jesus. And the church participates in making the right decisions. Well, how? Well, the church hears the proposition. So one of the men who have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these two men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. This is the proposal that Peter made to the church. Choose two men. And these are the qualifications. Then we see that the church prays about the proposition. And they prayed. They prayed. Which man would you have us to choose? Then the church responds to the proposition. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, we don't do lot casting today, sort of. Sort of. Lot casting then, we see it all back in the Old Testament. For example, the priest, the high, the high priest had the Urim and Thummim, which he would use as direction uh, for the people of God, Israel, and decision-making. Then we begin to see in the Old Testament that the idea, the practice of casting lots, which may seem really uh, uh, superstitious to us, would help them in deciding of certain things. The proverb writer says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so, and to help them to make decisions, they would cast a lot. They did so in the first church. It could have been a roll of a dice. They could have pulled a straw. They could have put names in a hat. In essence, what we do today is we vote. We vote. So as a church, here's our lot. In favor? Not in favor. It, it could be the same hand, by the way. I did it for emphasis. So a church responds because they're in prayer, following their pastoral leadership, seeking divine guidance, and responding appropriately. That this is what the Lord would have us to do. So what do we do with this information? Well, this is where we can apply this collectively and privately, is we need to pray collectively. As a church, we need to pray together. We need to pray together. We need to get people together to pray about God working among us, within us, and in our neighborhood to save people from their sins 
that they can be granted ever, to everlasting life so that we can see them uh, you know, connect with God, to follow God, to be blessed of God, and being obedient to Him. We need to pray. So corporately, we need to come together and pray. Sometimes maybe we don't do that enough. Individually, we still need to pray collectively. Anybody, have you ever asked anybody to pray for you? I want to get as many people praying for me as possible. In fact, James says, pray for one another. Hmm. Pray for one another. Look, we all have situations in life. I know that God knows them. But here's what it does for me when I know people are praying for me. One, I know that they care for me. They're going to encourage me. They're going to walk with me for whatever situation I'm facing. We need people like that in our life. So we need to pray collectively. Secondly, we need to study Scripture contemplatively. We don't need to study Scripture in the sense, okay, I'm going to do my yearly Bible reading or my 90-day Bible reading or my six-month Bible reading to check off a box. Okay, I've read. Don't put it away. No, we need to ask the questions. What difference does this make to me? What is God saying to me in this passage of Scripture? What is God saying to us as a church But when we look at His, His Word? What is it saying for us, and how then are we to respond? We need to think about it contemplatively. We can do this collectively, we can do this individually. Collectively, we study God's Word together. We have our study groups, which I'd encourage you to be a part of. If you're not, come see me. I'd love to plug you in somewhere. We have our Wednesday night Bible studies. In fact, we have a couple of adult Bible studies going on right now where we study God's Word contemplatively. We're going to start our children's program pretty soon that even our children can study God's Word contemplatively according to their age level. And then thirdly, to respond to God appropriately. If I've been praying about God's direction, I've been studying the Scriptures contemplatively, and we grasp what God has asked us to do, then we must respond to God appropriately, which is obediently. We must respond to God with a submissive heart. Because ultimately, I hope that you're like me, that you desire to please God. That your desire is to honor Him. Faith Baptist Church should be a church that elevates the name of Christ. That He is to receive all honor, all glory, all praise, and all worship. We should also do that individually. So this morning, maybe there's a decision that you are trying to make personally. Maybe it is a decision about salvation. I can tell you what, we have a body of people that's going to pray for you about that decision. I can tell you what the Scripture says about that decision. John 3.16 says, For God 
sent His only begotten Son into the world to give Himself as a sacrifice for the world because He loves you more than you think, unconditionally, that when you believe on Him, you should not perish but have eternal life. How do you respond? Paul says to believe in your heart that Jesus was de- died and was raised again and you should be saved. God loves you. God died for you. God wants you to respond. It's not by what you, all the works or the goodness you have. You, there's none good. There's only one that's good. That's Jesus. He died for you. And he wants you to come to him by faith. He wants you to respond by believing in him. Maybe you know Jesus. Great. Praise God. But God says that he has, he, and according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that you're a masterpiece, that he's forming, molding, and making, that you would walk in good works as he has already planned before time. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And that first step of obedience for any believer is that step of, of submitting to baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. The thief of the cross never needed to be baptized to be saved. And God, Jesus told him, today you shall be with me in paradise. Baptism is a, is a, is a commitment one makes to, to, to the Lord that they are going to follow them and they are going to, to identify with Christ, like putting on a uniform, making a public proclamation that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. He's given the church the command to go into all the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The command is there. How will you respond? The Lord also wants people to come together for worship like we're doing here now. So, This doesn't apply to you, I guess. Yes, it does. Now, some pastors might use Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, where it says, do not neglect the gathering yourselves together as the manner of some. But that's the reason of why we're here together to encourage one another. You know why we need to gather? To love each other, to encourage each other. Look, you may not think so, but I need you. Not, not just to listen to me, not, not just so I can have someone to preach to, but I need your friendship. I need your encouragement. I need your love. And you need mine. And we gather together for worship, for encouragement, to love one another, to walk with one another in the difficulties of life, Hey, even in the, in, the, in the successes of life. So how will we respond? There are so many more decisions that we could talk about this morning that we can bathe in prayer that Scripture will address and then we can respond to appropriately. 
But what decision do you have to make this morning? What will you do to make the right decision? So this morning as we stand together, we're going to have a time of invitation that maybe there's a decision upon your heart, in your life, on your mind that you need to make this morning. I'm going to ask that if everyone would just close their eyes and bow their heads and during this time of invitation, that perhaps you are here this morning and you know that Jesus has been speaking to your heart. You've been convinced by Scripture of what you need to do, that perhaps you need to give your life to Jesus, that you need to call on Him for salvation. Will you make the right decision today? Would you come? I would love to pray with you alongside you. Maybe you have more questions. I would love to show you in the Word of God, God's desire for your life. Would you come? Maybe you would like to take that next step of obedience after salvation and be baptized. We would love for you to come and make that known. Maybe you'd like to come and be a part of our church family where we can love one another. Yeah, sometimes we irritate one another too. But to love and to, to promote good Christian fellowship, seeking God together, desiring to live for Him. Would you come this morning? Perhaps there's another decision that is on your heart weighing heavy. You've been praying about it and you know what the scripture says, but sometimes you, you might just be a little hesitant in responding. Can I just say, if, that, if God has spoken to you through his word and you know what to do, why are you hesitant? are you hesitant? It is always the right thing to follow Christ, even if it's a difficult step to take. But I can tell you this, God wants nothing but the best for you. Follow Him.